0: from the nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john Weiner. today we'll speak with lawrence o'donnell the msnbc host he says the 2016 election was bad but 1968 was worse that's when nixon won when the Vietnam War continued, and it's the subject of his new book. It's called Playing With Fire. Also, why are working class white people so angry? One well-known attempt at an explanation is the best-selling memoir, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. But historian Stephen Hahn doesn't think much of the book. He'll explain why later in this hour. First up today, the resistance to Trump year one For that, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU, a contributor to the New York Review, and legal correspondent for The Nation magazine. We reached him today at the ACLU office in New York City. David, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Well, now we're going to step back from the news of the day, the news of the week, to look back over the years since Trump got elected. Even though Republicans control both houses of Congress and two-thirds of state legislatures, and now have a majority on the Supreme Court, you say Trump's ability to do damage has been substantially checked. Are you sure about that?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I'm sure that it's been substantially checked. I don't think it's uh, we can sit back and, and relax. But um, but look, here, here's somebody who, who who came to office uh, with. Uh, majorities in both houses of congress and as you said majorities in most of the state uh... houses as well for his party uh... he has yet to pass a significant piece of legislation Um and he has been repeatedly uh... repeatedly uh, frustrated in his ability to uh... Act through the legislature to put in place anything that would uh... you know constitute law uh... he has been able to act in areas where the executive can act independently, um, withdrawing various environmental protections and uh, imposing things like the travel ban and the like. But those things, uh, number one, are subject to challenge in the courts, and number two, are subject to being reversed uh, when the next president is elected, who I'm quite confident will not be Donald Trump.
0: Well, let's talk about some of these key issues. Let me say my pet peeve is voting rights, the new voting restrictions that Republicans have been pursuing, not just Trump, but for more than a decade now that helped make Trump president. And You and the ACLU have been fighting a vigorous battle on that front, and I'd just like to check on where we stand at this point, especially one of the most outrageous cases is Ohio's purge of the voting rolls. The state of Ohio removed people from the voting rolls who chose not to vote, and I know that you and the ACLU are challenging this in court. Where do we stand on this Ohio purge of the voting rolls?
2: so that's uh...
1: that is scheduled to be argued uh... in the supreme court in january uh... we we prevailed below in in advance of the election and 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 the court the sixth circuit court of appeals and joined ohio from in fact uh... knocking people off the rolls uh for failing to vote which is what they were doing uh... and many people were uh... thousands of people were able to vote who otherwise would not have been able to vote for twenty years the justice department uh, under both Republican and Democratic administrations, agreed with the position that we took in uh, in that case and that we uh, and on which we prevailed. But once Trump was elected, the Justice Department reversed twenty years of precedent and is now uh, on the opposite side, supporting Ohio's efforts to purge voters. Uh, that'll be argued probably
0: in January. This concept of failing to vote—I wonder if you'd like to reconsider the term "failing." <laughs>
1: I mean, it's a, it's a crazy. Uh, I mean, it, 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 the the idea. Congress passed something called the National Voter Registration Act, the Motor Voter Law, um, some some time ago, and one of the things they were uh, concerned about was states knocking people off the registration rolls and frustrating their ability to vote. Uh, and there were a number of states that did it simply if you didn't vote in enough, you know, in enough elections. They presumed that you, you know, were either dead or, or moved, and they just knocked you off the rolls, even if you had were still breathing and 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 just weren't, you know, inspired by the uh, by the candidates. So Congress said you cannot have a system. Uh, that results in the removal of a voter from the registration list uh, for failing to vote. And one of the reasons they did that was because they said, you know, you have a constitutional right to vote. You also have a constitutional right not to vote. You can't
0: exactly. Be penalized. Exactly. You can't be penalized exactly. Yeah. You have a constitutional right not to vote as part of the right to vote, so you can't be punished for not voting by being removed from the voting rolls. I think the ACLU has a very convincing case here, and I guess so do the uh, lower courts.
1: So are the lower courts. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes in the in the Supreme Court. But that's a very important uh, voting case going forward.
0: And what else is happening on the voting rights front? Well, you know the big the big
1: thing is the the, the, uh, the Trump administration is uh, following the playbook of the Republican Party, which is seeing that there are a lot of new demographics in this country, a lot of younger voters, a lot of voters of color uh who who they who may not support the Republican party and instead of adjusting their policies to try to reach out to those voters they search for ways to deny their access to the ballot it's called voter suppression and in their terminology it goes under the name of preventing voter fraud they haven't actually identified almost any voter fraud but they nonetheless raise it as a bugaboo as a justification to knock people off the rolls and so Trump is sort of laying the groundwork for that created this voter fraud commission headed up by Chris Kobach uh, from from Kansas who is uh, sort of the architect of voter suppression and, uh, we and we've challenged the makeup of that, uh, of that commission. We've challenged the secretive way in which that commission has operated uh, in the courts. And uh, we were able, through the courts, to, get, to force Kobach to disclose documents that demonstrated that the entire purpose of this commission was, in fact, to lay the groundwork for suppressing the vote, for denying people access. To the vote, so you know we're watching that very, very carefully, and uh, and we fully suspect that uh, that there will be efforts at the state level to to sort of do Trump's bidding, and 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 we'll be will be there at each uh, at each step to challenge those efforts.
0: We've talked several times on this program about the the legal challenges to Trump's Muslim travel ban. Uh, I wonder where we stand at this point. I know the Ninth Circuit here in California just recently, the headline was, Allowed Trump's Travel Ban for People from Six Muslim-Majority Countries to Go into Effect Partially. What exactly does that mean?
1: So, you know, this this is the third iteration of the travel ban. The first iteration was struck down by the courts including the Ninth Circuit. The the Trump administration did not take that to the Supreme Court. Instead, they put out a second iteration. That, too, was struck down by the courts, including the Ninth Circuit uh, in California, but also the Fourth Circuit uh, in Richmond, Virginia. The The administration took that up to the Supreme Court, but then issued Travel Ban 3.0, Uh, on the verge of oral argument in the Supreme Court, and so the case was sent back to the district courts to look at whether travel ban 3.0 is any different. So far, both the district court in in Hawaii and the district court in Maryland have concluded that travel ban 3.0 is just as unconstitutional and just as illegal as travel bans 1.0 and 2.0, and uh, that they are still an effort to basically put up a sign saying Muslims keep out, and that violates the Establishment Clause and is inconsistent with the Immigration uh, Act. The government is appealed. Appeals are pending in the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit. What the Ninth Circuit's most recent order did was essentially conform the district court's injunction to, in the same way that the Supreme Court had done before, which is to draw a distinction between how it applies to people Seeking visas who have a bona fide relationship with someone in the United States, meaning some family relationship or some relationship with a business or entity like an admission to a college or an offer of employment, those people are protected. But people who have no bona fide relationship to anyone in the United States are, are not protected by the injunction, uh, at least as it stands at this, uh, at this moment.
0: One of your most important arguments is that the courts can't stand up to President Trump alone, and we don't really expect them to do that. You see it as a much bigger struggle than simply the ACLU uh, going before the Ninth Circuit.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, so so I think understanding the travel ban. And the response to the travel ban requires you to look not just at what's happened in the courts, not just at the arguments made, but at what happened outside the courts. You know, the, the unprecedented public outcry in response to the, you know, the very first travel ban, where, where tens of thousands of Americans were, you know, rushed out to airports to, uh, to protest. The, uh, the ban and to, to provide assistance to those who were affected by it. That same weekend, you had, uh, you had statements by uh, Michael Hayden, who was the head of the CIA and the NSA, the National Security Administration, uh, under, under George W. Bush, uh, saying, you know, how about that? Uh, I'm with the ACLU on this one. Dick Cheney, uh, said uh this is uh this is on American John Yoo who wrote the torture memos said this is an abuse of executive power uh dozens of former national security and state department officials of both parties filed briefs uh, saying this undermines our security the presidents of all the major American universities and all the leading science foundations and uh all of the leading tech companies filed uh either petitions or letters or amicus briefs uh challenging uh the these bans. And so by the time the courts were taking these up, much of America had, had stood up uh in sharp criticism of these uh, of these actions by the President. And that that has an effect on the way, you know, the, the, the willingness really of the courts to stand up to the president on a matter of national on whole, that is alleged to be a matter of national security. Uh, and immigration, and in other areas, the people standing up have have, have frustrated the uh, president from from even getting you know getting his his laws enacted. So the you know the, the the town halls, in which people came out and and excoriated their their representatives uh... if they were you know not standing up to the uh, to the uh, effort to repeal Obamacare, and and time and again that effort has failed. Um, so, you know, I, I think when you, when you look at the response from really, you know, the day after Trump's election to the, the women's march, the day after the inauguration, to the airport demonstrations, to the outpouring of, of uh, opposition to the to the ending of DACA, which has led Trump to sort of backpedal on that and say, well, I hope Congress can fix it. And if Congress doesn't fix it, maybe I'll extend it. I mean, all of these things are illustrations of the power of people in a democracy to push back against their leader when their leader is engaged in activities that are contrary to the to the people's will and to the principles uh, and values of the country.
0: We've talked about the ACLU's work on voting rights and on the travel ban. What else is on your agenda as legal director of the ACLU?
1: Oh, well there's there's so much else. We've got a, we got two two cases coming up in the Supreme Court in in the next couple of weeks. And both of which the Trump administration on the other side. One is whether the police can get access to your cell phone location data, which shows where you travel on essentially a minute by minute basis, you know, 24 seven, whether they can get access to that information without a warrant, without probable cause, without any Fourth Amendment constraints whatsoever. We have another case involving uh, whether uh, a, a a bakery uh, can refuse to serve a, a a gay couple because it opposes same sex same sex marriage, uh, they're claiming a First Amendment a, a right to discriminate. Again, the Trump administration is, has come in on the side of uh, those seeking an exemption from an anti discrimination law. We're seeking to enforce uh, that that anti discrimination law, and we're still fighting the Trump administration over the the policy the outrageous policy of the uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement of blocking women who are authorized to get abortions uh, from obtaining uh, those abortions when they are undocumented uh, minors uh, being held in, in, in federal facilities.
0: David Cole, citizen action is the key to resisting Trump. David Cole is a legal correspondent for The Nation. He's a contributor to the New York Review, where he wrote about Trump year one. And he also happens to be national legal director of the ACLU. David Cole, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks
1: for having me, John.
0: 1968, that terrible year in American politics, Now it's the subject of a new book by Lawrence O'Donnell. We watch him, of course, weeknights on MSNBC on The Last Word. He's also been chief of staff of the Senate Finance Committee, executive producer on the West Wing, and he's also written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and other publications. His new book is terrific. It's called Playing With Fire, The 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. Lawrence O'Donnell, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So much happened in 1968. The Vietnam War was reaching a peak. There were almost half a million American soldiers fighting in Vietnam. The anti-war movement was reaching a peak. Millions of people were demonstrating in the streets. The Democratic Party was beginning to consider the possibility uh, that the war was a terrible political mistake. So much happened in 68. Please run down for us the key events that culminated in Nixon narrowly defeating the Democratic candidate Hubert Humphrey that November.
3: Well it's going to sound like a mini-series because it is, (laughs) and uh, and each each one of the events I'm about to describe would have been the biggest event in any other campaign year. First of all, uh, a Democratic Senator, Eugene McCarthy, comes from out of nowhere and decides to challenge his party's President, Democratic President Lyndon Johnson, who is heavily favored for re election. Gene McCarthy decides to go up to New Hampshire and challenge him in the primary. Uh, LBJ's name isn't even on the ballot in the primary because there's not supposed to be a primary. There's a Democratic president. There's no need for Democratic primaries. Uh, McCarthy uh, goes up there, and I was a kid in high school at the time, and I thought he won because that's the sense that the uh, campaign coverage conveyed, and it was literally decades later that I discovered oh no, he came in second, but it was such a strong second that it shocked the political world. Uh, days later, Bobby Kennedy jumps into the race. Bobby Kennedy had been thinking about running longer than Gene McCarthy had thought about running. He had thought about running, decided not to, thought about it again, decided not to again, and now Bobby Kennedy was jumping in. So now there were two challenges to the establishment Democratic president incumbent uh, two challenges from the left. Uh, and and then uh, we go on to see this battle between McCarthy and Kennedy, uh, because LBJ wasn't really actively participating in the primary system and most states didn't have primaries anyway. Uh and then uh Martin Luther King gets assassinated, which stops everything and stops the campaign in its tracks for a while. Rioting breaks out all over the country. Bobby Kennedy has to announce to an audience in Indianapolis that night of the assassination of Martin Luther King what has happened. It's a black audience that came there to cheer Bobby Kennedy, and now they're crying. And one of the places rioting did not happen in the United States that night was the place where Bobby Kennedy personally made the announcement about Martin Luther King's assassination in Indianapolis. Two months later... Bobby Kennedy is assassinated on the night that he wins the California primary and was, it seemed, on his way to go to Chicago to grab the nomination off of the momentum of the California win. He's assassinated, uh, died, uh, shot, on, and is lying there on the floor of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Uh, Gene McCarthy then becomes terribly disoriented now that Bobby Kennedy is out of the race and has left the race in the worst possible way. He kind of drifts through the summer. Hubert Humphrey, Lyndon Johnson's vice president, after Johnson drops out, decides to try to get the nomination himself. He doesn't run in a single primary and he still gets the nomination by playing the inside game, what we would now call the superdelegate game, and gets the nomination simply by working the delegates in the hall. Uh, and, and you then have rioting outside the Democratic Convention, which a commission that's, that's commissioned to study the rioting after the fact calls a police riot. It's saying that the demonstrators uh, would have been peaceful uh but the police themselves decided to go into the demonstrators and attack them you have chaos inside the convention hall with mayor daly's security forces inside the convention hall throwing punches at network correspondents like mike wallace on the floor of the convention dan rather being knocked to the floor of the convention uh and it all ends with uh, a proven case of collusion richard nixon The Republican nominee believed he needed one thing more than anything else to win. He needed that on Election Day, the Vietnam War, be going and going badly. And so he colluded with the South Vietnamese government, communicated directly, indirectly, I should say, through emissaries uh, to the South Vietnamese government to not make any kind of peace. Moves at all uh, because hang on, Nixon will get a better deal for you than you will get with LBJ. And so the South Vietnamese government agreed to go to Paris to join the peace talks uh, about a week before the uh, election day. And Nixon intervened with them uh, secretly and got them to change their minds, and that South Vietnam tells President Johnson we're not going to go to Paris. Uh Johnson discovers this. He discovers through the CIA uh and through FBI wiretaps exactly what uh Richard Nixon is up to. L B J calls it treason when he sees what Nixon has been doing and he threatens to make it public. He tells a Republican senator he just might make it public,
0: tell the New York Times or the Washington Post what Richard Nixon has done. Why didn't LBJ reveal what Nixon had done, or why didn't Hubert Humphrey, why did they let him become president after Nixon committed what you call the worst crime in American political history?
3: Lyndon Johnson's own advisers, Defense Secretary, Secretary of State, tell him he can't do that, because he would reveal their intelligence-gathering methods in Washington, D.C., at the embassies and other things that he would have to reveal in the process. And people might might not believe him. They might just think this is a last-minute political attack. Huh. And uh, so Johnson goes through the anguish of that presidential decision and decides to keep it secret, and Nixon wins by less than 1% of the vote.
0: You have uh, compared Trump today with vietnam in nineteen sixty eight and you said trump is our vietnam you even said that it's bad today but it was worse in nineteen sixty eight could you explain that
3: well it's actually uh... It was a twenty two-year-old student who said to me that uh... trump is our vietnam after i was explaining after the election the day after the election i was talking to some young student college students and they were saying, "This is how horrible this was. How horrible it felt to them." Um, and I said, "I tried to explain that it was worse in 1968," and they couldn't really comprehend that because they didn't live through it, and they haven't an experienced the draft, and they don't know what it's like for their boyfriend to be shipped off to Vietnam and killed, or their brother, or to have, or to be drafted themselves and sent into combat. So, so they couldn't connect with it. But they heard what I was saying and and some of them said back to me well this is our vietnam and i think they're right in the sense that they felt completely alienated from government they felt politics completely failed them in every conceivable way to deliver this horrible outcome uh, in this election that's and 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 spiritually uh, that what they feel inside is is similar to what we felt inside in 1968 a kind of hopelessness uh, and yet at the same time a need to be heard and to protest and so I think in that sense this is uh, the The deepest most personally felt alienation from government and protest of government uh, since uh, the Vietnam War
0: well I remember 1968 vividly too I was a student I was an SDS member I remember what you describe as hopelessness when Nixon was elected You know, we had worked so hard, we were so exhausted, it was uh, such a despairing situation because now the Vietnam War was not going to end, tens of thousands more Americans would get killed, maybe a million Vietnamese were going to get killed, but you conclude that from the perspective of just six years later, this is a quote from your book, the peace movement won. I mean, looking at our sense of despair and hopelessness at the end of 1968, what do you mean the peace movement won?
3: Well, we have to understand the dimensions of of the game, if we if we're going to call it that. When we're dealing with politics, and people often make this mistake of thinking it's it's won or lost uh, in the election, or it's won or lost in one year, and it isn't. and uh, I worked for Senator Moynihan, uh, we one time had a a member of the new cabinet who was being confirmed, and um, we had the sense that that uh, this guy would would work. In government for two years and then leave, and and Senator Moynihan said to him, "Well, you know, there's no sense getting involved in this if you're not going to spend 30 years with it." Wow. And and that's that's how you define crusades in politics and government. And so, no, the peace movement didn't win in 1968, but uh, the Vietnam War ended when it ended and the draft ended when it ended because eugene mccarthy decided to run for president in nineteen sixty eight and give the peace movement a spot on the presidential ballot for the very first time and if he had not decided to do that we would not have had our first peace candidate running for president until 1972, until four years later. So does that mean the Vietnam War would have lasted four years longer than it did? Does that mean that the draft would have lasted four years longer than it did? And I I would submit to you, it definitely means it would have lasted longer. We have no idea how much longer, but because Gene McCarthy uh, gave the peace movement its its ballot initiative, as it were, in 1968, uh, it it started the clock ticking on the end of the Vietnam War. And if he waited another four years, if that didn't happen for another four years, we probably would have had another four years of uh, death and destruction in Vietnam, and another and tens of thousands more American soldiers uh, killed in Vietnam, and possibly hundreds of thousands more Vietnamese killed
0: last question one personal note where were you in 1968 did you end up getting drafted did you go to vietnam
3: no i was a, I was in high school in 1968 watching all of this uh, on tv uh, as the political coverage covered it i then got a draft notice in 1972 and at the end of 1972 i uh, had my physical uh, and then in, I had my physical in January of 1973, and usually after you pass the physical, as I did, about two weeks later you get something in the mail telling you where to report for duty. And I passed the physical, and a week after I passed the physical on January 27th, 1973, uh, President Nixon en- <clears throat> ended the draft. I should say he was forced to end the draft. And so he. everyone who I stood with that day at the induction center in South Boston uh, getting the physicals, none of those Young men were drafted and went to Vietnam because the draft ended for us. And so they all have children, and many of them have children and grandchildren who are alive today uh, who have no idea that they owe their lives to the peace movement that ended the draft uh, in January of 1973 instead of January of 1974 <laughs> or 75 or 76.
0: The book is Playing With Fire, The 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. The author is Lawrence O'Donnell. Thank you for this terrific book, and thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thank you very
1: much.
0: Now it's time to talk about angry working-class white people. We've heard a lot about them lately, and now we can read a lot about them. For that, we turn to Stephen Hahn. He teaches history at New York University. He's the author of many award-winning books, most recently A Nation Without Borders. Stephen Hahn, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we are told that angry working-class white people, especially men, made the difference in getting Trump the electoral votes he needed in the key states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin to become president. And there are a bunch of new books about angry working-class white people, which are said to explain what's happened to America. You've read a bunch of them, the top of the mm-hmm. list, the most popular, the best known, is Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. It's been on the bestseller list for 62 weeks. That's a year and 10 weeks. Who is J.D. Vance, and what is this book?
2: Well, J.D. Vance, as best as I can tell, and that's mostly from the book, Um Grew up in um, a declining steel town in uh, Ohio, but his family roots are in eastern Kentucky. Uh, he, his, his grandparents uh, were born there, and they also moved out. And he ended up at Yale Law School, I think, with uh, a professor who may have been the one uh, writing uh, was the angry, uh, was the tiger mom who encouraged him to write this. And I don't really know much more about it, but uh, he's very young. Uh, he calls it a memoir, but he himself acknowledges how odd it is for a 31 uh, or 2 year old to write a memoir. But he certainly uh, saw an opportunity to reflect on what he thought were his own experiences in this kind of arc of hillbilly culture uh, to try to explain, you know, one of the important things that he thinks are going on, which has to do with the consequences of industrialization, how it's had um, a very adverse impact on uh, white
0: working folk. You write in The Nation that, Hillbilly Elegy, this massive bestseller quote has the feel of a college application essay close quote that's
2: I mean he raises uh, an assortment of interesting questions uh, recognizing that the kind of migrations that his family uh, underwent were common to a wide variety of Southerners, including African Americans, but he has no interest really in reflecting on them, and in fact prefers to use the story as something of a morality uh, tale, and trading in caricatures that we tend to associate with the very people he discusses. And so they seem you know with with the exception of his grandparents to be pretty um uh, sort of thinly crafted uh, people and uh, the story of course is his uh, redemption from the um, you know sort of being grabbed from the jaws of disaster by his grandparents and his own good fortunes of managing to get out of the uh, morass he saw for the rest of his family and community, because his, his mother in particular was kind of caught in this, um, this uh, situation. So I, I thought it was basically a pretty superficial rendering of what was going on. And because it was a story of how he managed uh, to
0: find his way out of it, up against enormous is well, he writes about the people he calls hillbillies who are violent yeah. and lazy and ignorant and sexist and angry at the political establishment and angry at Obama. What is his explanation of their Well, anger? the thing
2: that's remarkable about it is that he, he's very um, quick to dismiss race uh and in, uh, instead he sees obama as an example of the uh privilege that um, democratic elites in particular uh have and how this makes uh the hillbilly folk where, which he both identifies with and kind of reviles you know, feel a sense of inferiority. Um, I, I was really, I mean, the the last section of the book is a kind of a reflection on contemporary politics and his ideas about, you know, where the Democratic Party went wrong and so on and so forth. So forth. And uh, that's his take. His take is that uh, a lot of the anger comes from a feeling that um, they've been passed over and that the advantages have gone to people like Barack Obama, who not so much because he's black but because, or a beneficiary of affirmative action per se, but rather because of his elite pedigree uh, seems to not only have uh, offered him advantages, but uh, remind them of the advantages that they don't have. At the same time, of course, he's very quick to talk about their own laziness and ignorance, so it's not as though he's trying to build a case uh, for people who have, you know, tried to go down that route and have been blocked.
0: For people who want to understand white working class anger, is there a better book than the monster bestseller by J.D. Vance?
2: Well, one of the books that I reviewed is a comparative study of uh, Youngstown, Ohio, and East London, England, by a guy named. Justin Guest, and you know, I think it's the best of the books I had an opportunity to write about, because he's really, I mean, it's not only a sort of a a comparative study which helps us understand that we're looking at really a transatlantic phenomenon, and certainly what's happened in uh, Europe over the past few years um, would confirm that, but he's also interested in recognizing that the whole construction of the idea of a white working class obscures... Uh, the way in which categories tend to submerge other really important divisions, as is true so that in Youngstown in its heyday uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, when it's an overwhelmingly uh, white city and has a um, a fairly um, prosperous white working class, that the white working class itself you know, has many divisions along ethnic um, and cultural lines that people who are regarded as white may be from the Middle East, they may be from Southern Europe. And so that these were issues that uh, working people in Youngstown, Ohio, and especially in the steel industry, which was uh, so formidable there, um, you know, struggled over themselves. So, you know, one of the things that is, I think, should be clear is that, this, you know, the white working class is not an analytical category, but a sort of cultural and political construction that is meant for us to kind of have uh, to understand some of the important political divisions uh, that take place, but it doesn't offer us very much information as to who these people are, what they do, and why we even call them working class.
0: What exactly does he mean by the title, The New Minority, if he doesn't have a a concept of a unitary white working class? Well, what he
2: does, what he tries to argue is that there's this, what he calls, a sense of minoritization. And I I Uh think one of the the, the tensions in the book is between his recognition that the uh, so-called white working class is not uh, homogenous and the idea more recently that white working people, people who had been uh, employed in um, steel mills or were the children of people who had been comfortably employed in steel mills have increasingly got a feeling because, not necessarily because of their numbers, but because of their lack of access to power, that they too have become a new minority. He does recognize, too, that that doesn't foreordain any specific politics. And that he tries to suggest that there are two or three routes uh, people um, do politically who are, regard themselves as in this situation, one of which is to express rage and, and contempt for the established politics, but it's not the only one.
0: And what are the other routes beyond, uh, or aside from, let's call it Trumpism?
2: Right. Well, what he suggests is that some of them withdraw from politics. Entirely, and others actually try to find their way within uh, established political institutions. So that the third is uh, what uh, the media tends to call, you know, sort of populist, which is doesn't have any program, which doesn't necessarily have any clear party connection, but is mostly governed by a sense of uh, betrayal and outrage and uh, feeling that the established political structures are no longer adequate to deal with their uh, problems, a sense of powerlessness.
0: What about populism with a more progressive political content like Bernie Sanders? Does he consider this a significant uh, potential for the people he's writing about in Youngstown?
2: Well, th- this book came out before the Sanders phenomenon, uh-huh. so he really doesn't take this on. And he doesn't, he is not uh, all that interested. I mean, he uses this minoritization as his, you know, main concept. Um, so it's not really built around, I mean, populist is, is something that he, uh, a label he uses to refer only in part of the book mm-hmm. uh, to this sort of um, sense of anger uh, and rage that that he sees mostly anti-establishment and you know uh, i don't think that any of the other works really offer much of a way of thinking about this. I mean, it strikes me that the media has played a pretty bad role in, you know, suggesting that this, you know, populism is a useful way to think about much of what is going on, because it, it it's kind of a stand-in for ignorant people who don't know what they're doing and yes. are just pissed off. Uh-huh. You know, how we got from Populism in the late nineteenth century, which was a political party, and people called themselves populists, and they did have a program, and you know they had, you know, had their bad behavior as well as good behavior, but it was an attempt to readjust the balances of power in the industrializing United States, and how you get from that to a kind of small p populism that I think has been shaped by um, the tendency of uh, movements and phenomena we call populists to be more right wing.
0: Steve Hahn wrote for The Nation magazine about the rage of white folk, how the silent majority became a loud and angry minority. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, John. It's really uh, nice to be on the show. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Hosted by the sports editor of The Nation and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So, even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday now at take, 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 take the slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at TheNation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocketcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.